Almighty God, we worship you. We pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us as we open up your word. Convict us of sin, bring us to life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Nearly all of us know at least one line from this great story that's told in John chapter 9 because we know the great hymn of John Newton, Amazing Grace, which begins, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, and this is the line, was blind, but now I see. This text, John chapter 9, is all about movement from blindness to sight. Which is another way of saying from darkness to light or from death to life. This is what Jesus' ministry is all about. His life, his power, his inbreaking into the world is the dawn of a new creation of God's great redemptive work that will bring about liberation from sin and evil and death. And in our story today in John 9, this total liberation, which is spiritual and one day physical, is depicted in the physical healing of a man who was born blind. And the point is clear. If you want to see, then come to Jesus, who in the previous chapter had declared himself to be the light of the world. That is how we will see. The story is masterfully told in John 9. There is a healing and then there is a long dispute about Jesus between the blind man and the religious leaders. We stopped at verse 17, but I actually want to pick it up in verse 18 together with you. If you have a Bible, feel free to follow along with me and invite you to enter into this story more as we pick up this dispute. And notice the dominating question in this dispute is the same as the question that really runs throughout the entire gospel. Who is Jesus and where is he from? So starting again in verse 18, after the man has said he is a prophet, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. 
if this were not from if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment, I came into the world that those who do, do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Now with the entire story in front of us, I'd like to make three observations about Jesus and three observations about the blind man. So first with Jesus, and it's always good to start with Jesus, but let's start in verse one, where we read that he saw a blind man from birth. That's an easy point to miss, but I want us to linger on it for a moment. Jesus sees hurting people. If you know the gospels, then you know that this is true. Jesus spends time with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. Or in the Beatitudes, he says, blessed are those who are poor, who hunger, who weep. We think about his encounter with Zacchaeus, this greedy, hurting man who was a tax collector, exploiting people, who had climbed up in the tree in Luke 19 to see Jesus. But Jesus sees him and looks up and calls out to him and says that he will go to his house that day and bring salvation. Or consider the woman that Jesus encounters at the well in Samaria in John chapter 4. It was the heat of day and she had come because she was ashamed and didn't want to be seen by those in her town. She was hurting and empty and thirsty. And Jesus sees her and he engages her and offers her living water. If you're hurting today... And who of us is not hurting in the middle of these circumstances in the pandemic? Living in the midst of a world of brokenness and sin? Then take comfort in this. That our Savior is a man who sees hurting people. As we read in Isaiah 42. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He won't break the bruised among us. He won't quench those who are barely alive for whom it was an effort to get out of bed this morning. As he passed by, verse 1 says, he saw a man blind from birth. He saw him and he sees you as well. I love the practice of sharing our stories in the body of Christ and in my years in ministry of doing this with people again and again, I'm always amazed at how it can change the way that we see one another. As they open up to us, we hear of their pain and of their trials, of their suffering, and often the things about them that annoy us or rubbed us the wrong way are suddenly put into their proper perspective. And we're moved to compassion and our hearts are open to our brother or sister. 
And then as we share of our own lives and our own battered souls, their hearts are open to us and they see us in a new light. As the I've got it all together facade is is moved away, at least for a time, we learn how to become more gracious and more patient, how to see each other as God sees us. Now that we know about the battle that this person has engaged with in their business or the health issues that they're facing or the abuse that they suffered as a child or the bankruptcy that they've lived through because of their parents or the persistent grief over a wayward child. Once we see these things, we see the hurt, it changes the way that we view another person. And the beauty is that Jesus doesn't need us to open up and tell our stories. He sees us directly. He knows our pain. He knows our hurt. He knows how we're just like this blind man who was begging in the temple precincts. And he sees. Second, Jesus heals the man. He doesn't just see him, but he heals him. This is the plain and marvelous fact of John chapter 9 of this story and in the cause of the disputation in this chapter. But I want us to contemplate for a moment how this healing occurs with dirt and spit with saliva made mud being put on the man's eyes. We read that Jesus anointed his eyes, though that word also simply means to spread or to smear on. Imagine this blind man with mud all over his broken eyes and be shocked again at just how counterintuitive this is. With that mud, Jesus actually extinguishes any bits of light that this man bro- man's broken eyes would have been able to perceive. Suddenly the darkness has become even greater in his life and the man must have wondered what was going on. In the words of John Newton's friend and I would say the more capable poet William Cooper, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. Or in the words of the prophet Isaiah who speaks on behalf of God, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. Indeed, the divine path to liberation and to victory and to enlightenment is the path of the unexpected way of the cross. So Paul can say, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Indeed, he has. Could any human mind have ever conceived of such a path for liberation and redemption and renewal? Not at all. Similarly, would any of us have thought of healing a man born blind by rubbing grit and dirt wet with our saliva on his eyes? Honestly, we wouldn't have. Seems like a good way to us to make someone even more blind. But Jesus, surprising us as he always does, acts in this way. Later in Cooper's poem, he writes, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. I wonder in your lives, are you open to the God of the counterintuitive? Is he working to bring you greater sight, greater light, greater trust and yieldedness to him by putting mud on your eyes? Is he using circumstances and situations that seem like anything but life to you right now in the moment? To allow his life to flow in even greater ways through your heart and your life. It shouldn't surprise us. If he, if he is doing that, for he has always worked in these upside down ways. As if to show us that it's me that's really working. God, the, the creator of heaven and earth. And not you. And not just the result of your efforts or your aims or your techniques. 
God wants to work in these mysterious ways because then and only then do we know that it's God and God himself who gets the glory and the praise. Which is to say that if you do not feel God's presence and pleasure in your life right now, in fact, if you sense the opposite, if you feel like he's just rubbed mud in your eyes and snuffed out what little light you could see, I want to encourage you not to let those feelings diminish your faith. Rather, understand that God works in ways that confound our wisdom and our expectations. Honestly, as I look back on my own life, and I'm sure most of you would say the same about yours, it is those unwanted realities, the times of trial and suffering, that I look back on and realize that is where God has met me most. That's where God has formed and shaped me most. It's where he's defined and, and strengthened my faith most, through things that I would never have wanted. And yet God in his providence allowed and brought into my life. This is an honest acknowledgement for all of us. And it leaves us humbled and surrendered and yielded. Paul can say in Romans 11, how unsearchable are your judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? He smears mud on the blind man's eyes to heal him. What is he doing to heal you right now and to heal me? To give us more of himself. It's likely not what we would expect. Third, about Jesus, he not only sees, not only heals, but he finds this man. After having testified faithfully to the truth about Jesus, this man in verse 34 is derided for being born in sin and then is cast out. And in verse 35 we read, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Jesus finds his excluded and wounded, these excluded and wounded witnesses. Those who tell the truth about him and suffer the consequences. Augustine says of this man who was thrown out but then found by Jesus, quote, it was no disadvantage to be put out of the synagogue. Whom they cast out, Christ took in I think of the testimony of the Vietnamese martyr from the 19th century Paul Labau Tyne who died in 1855 he wrote a letter from prison where he'd been held for many years to a group of seminarians at the seminary that he had attended I Paul in chains for the name of Christ wish to relate to you the trials besetting me daily in order that you may be inflamed with love for God and join, me, join with me in his praises for his mercy is forever. And then he goes on to recount the tortures and pain of the prison and all the evil that was going on there. And he says, but the God who once freed the three children from the fiery furnace is with me always. He has delivered me from these tribulations and made them sweet for his mercy is forever. In the midst of these torments, which usually terrify others, I am by the grace of God full of joy and gladness. And then he says this, because I am not alone. Christ is with me. He finds his witnesses. He draws near to them in their trials. And that is an expression of his faithfulness. That this blind man who now sees, now experiences Jesus finds him and meets him. This is why we need not fear in our service of Jesus. He will find us come what may. There is that last beatitude where he says, blessed are you when others 
revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. And I wonder if we could add to that fairly, I think, in light of this text, that the reward is not just great in heaven, but your reward is the presence of the Jesus who is present with you, who finds you in your suffering. Jesus sees, he heals, and he finds. Now, secondly, let's make some observations, three of them, about the blind man. First, out of his blindness, out of his need, he obeys. In verse 7, Jesus says, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. And here is the secret to life. It is to do what Jesus says, simply, resolutely, and immediately. I think of the very clear parallel in Luke chapter 5 when Jesus gets into the boat with Peter to teach people from just off the shore. And then he says this to Peter, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon, Peter answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. Look, I'm the fisherman here. I know how to fish. You're the teacher. But because you told me to do it, I'll do it. Even though I think it's crazy. So he lets down the nets. And what happens? There's this amazing catch of fish. So much that the nets begin to break. This man in John 9 is a perfect picture of how to respond to the words of Jesus. They are to be trusted and obeyed. And we can only imagine how foolish this must have all seemed to him in that moment. Like it was to Peter in the boat. That little bit of light that he could see was now covered up in muck and mire on his eyes that some man he didn't really know was rubbing on his face. I think I would have resisted. I would say, hey, this is enough. You know, if you want to heal me, just say so. But this is crazy. But the man doesn't. He doesn't question his credentials. He doesn't demand further explanation. Maybe it's because he was so needy. Maybe it's because he was in, in, knew that he was in the presence of someone who knew what he was doing. So he went and he washed. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Second, this man bears witness. And this is the bulk of the encounter in John 9. It's a little bit of a longer point as well. The blind man first bears witness to his neighbors. He says, I am the man. They were asking questions. Could this really be the the beggar, the blind beggar that's been in the temple precincts all these years? Is this really him? And he says, no, no, it's me. I am the man, he says. And then he says how he received his sight by obeying Jesus in verse 11. He simply tells the truth about what happened. Then they take him to the Pharisees, those who hold authority and power, who represent the establishment. And what happens in this encounter is spectacular, actually. So much so that Calvin, in writing on this text, calls the boldness and courage of this blind man another miracle. Before these leaders, he speaks truthfully and boldly about Jesus. It's in this encounter with the Pharisees that we learn in verse 14 that it was the Sabbath day when this miracle took place. And that raises, of course, the suspicion of the Pharisees. Whoever did this, from their perspective, was sitting loose on the law. 
But as Jesus had shown throughout his ministry, he didn't follow the Pharisees' rules. He didn't abide by their oral tradition. And instead, he reclaimed the Sabbath as a day of restoration and renewal. And what better way to demonstrate God's purposes for humanity in restoration and renewal than in the healing of a blind man on the Sabbath day? Or back in chapter 5, the healing of an invalid on the Sabbath day. Or in Mark chapter 3, the healing of a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath day. It was a repeated practice of Jesus making a point. So confronted with the miracle in front of them, but also with their oral tradition hanging behind them. They're divided about the man that did this to the blind man. We learn in verse 16. And so in verse 17, they say again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he says simply, he is a prophet. Now we need to understand the power dynamics at play here in this story to appreciate the boldness of this man in this moment. These were Pharisees. They were the the renewal movement within Judaism that had set itself up as the arbiter on all things spiritual and scriptural. They had authority and clout. They were social insiders. And here was a man born blind, the epitome of a social outsider. And in this exchange, he had everything to lose. He knew that they were suspicious about Jesus and threatened by Jesus. He had every incentive when they said, what do you say about him? To just go, I don't know, I forgot. Or just to stay quiet. That would have been the easy path. The least costly path. But when he was asked and confronted directly. He says truthfully he is a prophet. Meaning he is on the side of God. He speaks for God. And that was no way to earn favors with the Pharisees. It was very provocative. And they're miffed. They still can't believe. And so they call his parents. Who corroborate the fact that he. This one who can clearly now see was in fact their son born blind. But when pushed pushed further, his parents don't follow the example of their son. They can confirm that he now sees, verse 21, but they say, how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, they say, he is of age, he will speak for himself. They leave their son exposed, And isolated. Their son, this one after all, the boy who they had raised, who was blind, who they had led from one place to the next. The conversations which they would have used to describe the world that they could see that he couldn't. All of that parental warmth is gone in this moment. It's cold. And maybe it left years ago. We don't know. But they're afraid. John tells us in verses 22 and 23. The Jewish leaders, at least in Jerusalem at this time, John says, had already agreed that anyone who confesses Jesus to be the Christ or the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. And we need to understand that to be put out of the synagogue didn't just mean that they couldn't go to religious services on the Sabbath. It was much bigger than that. In the words of one commentator, it was to become a non-person. Consider these words from Jewish oral law about a century later about those put out of the synagogue. One sells them nothing and buys nothing from them. One takes nothing from them and gives them nothing. One teaches their sons no craft and one does not allow oneself to be treated by them medically. This was to be completely cut off. This was meant you couldn't go to the soccer games or the school assemblies or the Christmas concerts or the church services, you were cut off completely. 
And they were not going to risk that to speak of Jesus. Certainly they knew who had healed their son. Can you imagine what they felt like when they saw their son, an adult who had been blind and begging, now seeing, healthy, restored? But they wouldn't risk it. Some think that by the time John is writing this gospel in the latter part of the first century that many Christians were facing similar consequences for confessing Jesus as the Messiah. That they too would be cut off from their communities. Many around the world face the same consequences today. If they confess Christ, it may mean the loss of family, the loss of honor, the loss of jobs, the loss of security and safety. And all of that loss was weighing upon the parents in this moment. They wouldn't speak up. They left their son exposed and isolated and alone for fear of what speaking for Jesus would cost them. But not this man. No, he is a counterexample even to his parents and he presses on. The heart of this chapter is verses 24 to 34 where the Pharisees interrogate him for a second time. And they begin in this way, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. They urge him to acknowledge the waywardness of Jesus. But he will not do it. In fact, he sticks to only what he knows. He says, I can't say if Jesus is a sinner or not, which is true. He doesn't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. That's the fact that I can speak to. That my life has been completely transformed radically by an encounter with this man that you say is a sinner. I was blind. My whole life I couldn't see anything. And I can see you plain and clear right in front of me right now. That's what I know. He said to them, this man put mud on my eyes. He told me to wash and now I see. And you must deal with this fact. The fact of me transformed right here before your very eyes. Well, they ask again, well, how did he do it? And he pushes further. He says, look, I've told you. Do you want me to tell you again? Because you want to become his disciples? They revile him in that moment and claim that they are disciples of Moses. And they say, we know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And there is that question that runs throughout John's gospel again. Where is Jesus from? Who is Jesus? And we almost hear in their, their statement, we do not know where he comes from, that John, the gospel writer, is encouraging all readers of his gospel to say, maybe they should inquire. Maybe they should figure that out. Maybe they should study and learn and come to understand and not so quickly dismiss him. Because he healed this man on the Sabbath. And then at this, the blind man's testimony is bold and clear. You don't know where he comes from. And yet he opened my eyes. And then he teaches them a theological lesson. He says, look, God doesn't listen to sinners. And then he says a historical lesson. No one has ever opened the eyes of a man born blind. And then he makes his conclusion, putting these two things together. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. The conclusion is he is from God. He is a prophet. What a, a bold and amazing witness in front of these people of power. It is another miracle indeed because the consequences were so great. And he is dismissed as one born in utter sin. Would you teach us, they say? Asking him in ridicule and then they throw him out. So what is it that drives such a bold witness? It is of course the change in his life. It is the encounter with and the conviction about the power of God. 
When our life has been changed by Jesus, we will speak for him. When we have seen his power in our lives, we cannot help but lift our voices up to declare his greatness, whatever the consequence may be. This man says, I can see. My life has been transformed. He knows who healed him. And he is going to bear faithful and truthful witness to that one who has healed him. Think similarly about the apostles. In the early chapters of Acts, they too had encountered Jesus in his post-resurrection glory. They had encountered the spirit in the day of Pentecost. They encountered the power of Jesus at the temple gate called beautiful in Acts chapter 3. When the lame man was healed and bounded up and praised God. And then John and Peter were walking around declaring with boldness and courage that this man was healed in the name of Jesus. By the power of Jesus. And the authorities called them in, those in power. And we read this in Acts chapter 4 verse 13. Now when they, those authorities, saw the boldness of Peter and John. And perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. What is it that empowers our truthful witness to the world? It is the same thing that empowered this blind man's witness in John chapter 9. It is a transformative encounter with the living God. This man can testify, my life is radically different. And so he speaks without any thought of the consequences. About the truth of the one who had touched him, who had healed him, who had seen him. And who would then come and find him as he had been thrown out. Why do we need not be afraid of the consequences? Because what could people take away that Christ could not give? We already have all that we could ever have in him. We can lose nothing of real value. Because we have the one of supreme and ultimate value. The pearl of great price. And it is this reality that transformed the blind man and fueled his courageous And truthful witness about Jesus. Let me just ask at this point. Have we encountered him? Do we know him and his power? The point of our worship. And it's a little more difficult when we're virtual and scattered. But the point of our worship is to meet him. The transcendent Lord of glory. To encounter him in his wonder and awe and power and holiness and beauty and mercy and love. All of his manifold perfections being on display as we worship him. In obedience to his word. For in this encounter we are changed and we are emboldened to be his witnesses. I also want to remind you that if you feel dry, if you feel God's absence right now more than his presence, and that is an experience of God's children, remember God works in mysterious ways. The reality is that our witness is still and always rooted forever in the mighty power of God. Because at the heart of our witness to the world is about the resurrection of the Son of God, of Jesus. Which is the greatest display of new creation power that the world has ever known. Three days after his crucifixion, he was raised in power by the Spirit from the dead, bodily, physically. Now the first evidence of the new creation work. And that power in the resurrection and that work is more than even the healing of this blind man from birth in John 9. And it is personal for each one of us and central also for the entire creation. 
It is this work of God's power that fuels our fearless witness above all else. So this man obeys. This man bears witness truthfully. And third, and much more briefly, he believes and worships. When Jesus finds him, he invites him to believe in the Son of Man, whom he has seen and who is speaking to him. And he simply says, Lord, I believe. And then he worshiped him. This is the posture of a true disciple. And in this case, the blind man, in addition to the others, becomes the paradigm for what true discipleship looks like. Believing in Jesus. That is the goal of the gospel of John. That is the invitation of our Lord. And worshiping him. Now it's quite likely that historically in this moment. He doesn't really identify Jesus as sharing in the divine identity. But it's clear that the gospel of John. With its prologue in the beginning. About the word who was with God and was God. Wants for us to see. In this man's response of belief and worship. That Jesus does in fact share in the divine identity. And is worthy of the response of worship. Which will come after his resurrection from the doubting disciple Thomas as well. So Jesus sees, heals, and finds. The blind man, out of his need, obeys, bears witness, believes, and worships. This is what faith looks like. But not all respond in this way. And I want to conclude with how Jesus ends this chapter. Because not all respond, of course. There was argument and dispute and disbelief in this text as well. In the lives of the Pharisees. Verse 39, Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Seems that Jesus, who has said in chapter 3, and will say again in chapter 12, that I didn't come to judge but to save, it seems... He's coming to terms with the fact that his very presence in the world is creating this dividing line. And kind of acknowledging, yeah, I came for judgment because this kind of division is happening as people respond to me. This is a reality, he says, of my ministry. But here is the key. That those who do not see may see. The blind may see. That's what this miracle illustrates so clearly. But those who see may become blind. So the issue is whether we think we see or not. When Jesus says that in verse 49, the Pharisees who overheard him say that said, are we also blind? And he answers, if you were blind, you would have no guilt or sin is the word. But now that you say we see, your sin or your guilt remains. And what this means is those who claim to see will resist the inbreaking new creation power of God in Jesus. And as such, they'll remain in their sins. To say that you see is to remain blind. And the refrain of the Pharisees in this story is, we know, we know. They say that in verse 24 and again in verse 29. But they didn't know. They thought they knew. And that's Jesus' point. If you think you see, you'll be closed to this inbreaking work of God in your midst. If you think that you see, you'll remain blind and stuck in your sin. If on the other hand, you know your need and your blindness, your finitude, you'll be open to the new life of God breaking in. And you'll have no guilt in sin as you are washed 
Remember what he says to Peter in John 13, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Do we think that we see or do we know that we're blind? Back in Isaiah 50, the prophet says, let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. You're in darkness, so you trust. But then he continues, behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you shall have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Do we think that we see? Or do we know like the blind man that we are in great need and blind? I'll close with this little story that Jesus tells in Luke 18. He compares two people who come to pray. The one is a Pharisee. And he goes up boldly to God and says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus says, one went home justified. One went home alive. One went home seeing. One went home connected to God. And one did not. And it was the one who thought he saw that was not justified before God. In his pride, he was blinded and remained in his sin. But it was the one who knew his need, who knew that he was blind. Who wouldn't even approach the temple. It was he who could, in fact, see. And that is the key to the whole of John chapter 9. And in many ways to the whole of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do we know that we are blind? That we have great need? And that Jesus is a great savior who sees us, who heals us, and who finds us. He came that we might have life. That the blind might see. Let's pray. Oh God, we worship you for the amazing gift of your son, the light of the world, for seeing us in our hurt, for healing us in our need, for finding us in whatever circumstances that we find ourselves in, particularly as we walk faithfully with you. We worship you and praise you. Thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. Thank you for the light of the world. Thank you for the, the, the freedom to admit our blindness and to come into his marvelous and glorious light. Oh, Lord Jesus, we praise you. Let us walk with you in this week ahead. Let us bear faithful witness to you as the blind man did here. And may you receive glory and praise. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.